Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Rabbi Hatchoff, thank you so much for joining us today. You are a speaker and you are a dean at Yeshiva University, right? And uh, not, not a dean. I'm a, a professor. I don't... Uh... Professor. I love that. Um, and, and you've written two books. The third one is coming out. Will Jew marry me? Jew have questions. Are you working Jew into the new topic of your book? or? I, I actually wanted to. The first book was uh, Jew Got Questions. And the second one was Will Jew Marry Me? The third book, the topic is uh, Mashiach, the Messiah, uh, and the end of days. So I wanted to go with the title, Jewpocalypse. However, my publisher was like, nah, too much, Dayenu. He'd gone too far already. So uh, instead, the title of the new book, which will be out in a few weeks, is The Future, uh, The Jewish Messiah, Israel, and the End of Days. Amazing. And before we get into that topic specifically, can you give me a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are writing and promoting and teaching? Um, so uh, I grew up in London, England, as you can tell from the accent. It isn't New Jersey. And um, I grew up a traditional Jewish kid, went to yeshiva growing up. I wasn't particularly uh, uh, great in my yeshiva studies, unfortunately. Uh, I was in my secular studies, uh, although I did spend a year in Israel studying. Um, after which I went to University of Manchester, I studied political science and I thought I'd be working in journalism and media, which I did for about a couple of years. I worked for MTV, uh, among other news organizations. At that point, I decided that I wanted to uh, um, pursue Jewish learning. I met a... What, what made you make that assessment or desire? Um, it was, it took time. I wasn't like, you know, hand didn't come out of the heavens and like pick me up, nothing crazy like that. I met certain uh, teachers and rabbis in my early 20s who had a profound effect upon me. I go to classes, programs, trips, you know? It was like Israel free trips and stuff like that. I was like a, a, a trip, uh, you know, junkie, especially the free ones. So I used to go on a lot of programs and eventually I realized this was something I wanted to do. And I spoke to a lot of people. And I, so I went back to study after working for a few years uh, in Israel and then here in New York. Uh, so I didn't finish my rabbinical studies till I was 30 years old. Uh, and that's when I started to, uh, to work in the, in the world of Jewish education. Uh, I, my, one of my first jobs was working for a place called the uh, Jewish Enrichment Center, JEC, in Manhattan. And that was just me and uh, another guy, another rabbi. And that eventually grew much bigger and collaborated with Birthright Israel. So I was actually the official rabbi of Birthright Israel, New York, for nearly 15 years. And at the same time, I got a, uh, uh, an, an adjunct position at uh, Stone College, Yeshiva University, and that grew. And now I'm full-time faculty for the past 13 years, uh, and I teach four courses a semester. I have 140 students every semester. So what I did was eventually uh, I realized there was a lot of information in the courses, and my students were like, you know, put this into a book. And I was like, nah, I don't think so. Like, no, just try, put it into a book. So I sat down and I spoke to a few friends and people had written books. I'm not a great writer. I'm really not. I'm not being humble. I'm just not. Uh, I have great editors. Um, but I eventually just put everything down into print and I wrote and wrote and wrote. And that's actually the secret to writing. I've learned. Now I'm on my third book. I finally realized it is just to sit and write, which sounds a little bit, you know, obvious. 
But the thing to do, and people come to, I get a lot of calls from people who see the books and say, you know, how should I do it? And you know, I'm going to get sponsorship and what I'm going to do. What's the title going to be? I'm going to forget everything. Just sit down and write. And eventually piece together and it'll become a, a book, which is what happens. So um, that's really what it was. It was basically information that was based upon the courses I teach. Uh, you know, working with young professionals, uh, birthright alumni specifically, I get a lot of questions. Uh, a lot of them very interesting, a lot of them very uh, challenging. So I just kind of like crunch them all into one, uh, into one book of uh, questions and answers. Uh, that was basically the process. Plus I deal a lot with couples who are dating, getting married. I've performed nearly 150 weddings over the past 15 years. Have another few coming up over the next few weeks. Uh, many of them uh, meet, have met on trips that I've led. I've led nearly 30 trips to Israel, Poland, Prague, Italy. One trip I led actually, we had five couples meet and get married. <laughs> close to them. You had a bonus for that? I've heard a lot of stories. Eventually I just put that down. That became the second book on, you know, dating relationships and marriage and all the challenges. Because I don't know what it's like where you are on your side of the country. Science fact, it's much warmer. In New York, most people who are dating are miserable. So I wanted to create some kind of guide to help people through that, uh, that process. That was really what it was all about. That's beautiful. One of the things that I'm so fascinated by, before we get into the actual content of what you write, is the career tract of, of rabbis and are people that are kind of out and working with Jewish people nowadays. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do or did your career sort of function like your books, which is you just kind of got out and just kept working and, and things built as they, as they went? That's a, that's a great question, Jacob. Um, for me, it was a little different. I, it was a later life decision. I wasn't until I was in my you know, mid to late 20s, I decided this was gonna be my, my career choice. I specifically, however, went in knowing that I wanted to work with young professionals, college age and young professionals in Jewish outreach, working with people who didn't have much Jewish background, which going back 15 years ago wasn't, it was happening in the Jewish world, uh, targeting that population I'm talking about. You know, there was Chabad that were out there and there were some outreach organizations that were doing stuff, but in Manhattan there was pretty much nothing at all. We were pretty revolutionary, so I went in to my studies, knowing full well this was what I was going to do. I, I knew I didn't want to be a pulpit rabbi, although you know I've been often been tempted over the past. But that's a whole different thing. Or working in kashrut, working in kosher, or anything else in the you know rabbinical world. I knew this is what uh, I wanted to do, and I was just thank God I was very lucky enough. I had a much much mazal. I was able to um, make a long term living out of it. There's a number of people who started that. They had to go into pulpit to, you know, pay their salaries, you know, make a living and do other things, which is fine. Uh, I just don't think I'll make a very good pulpit rabbi. Um, so I just kind of like stayed on this track and I just managed to, uh, to keep it going. You know, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate, very grateful for that. And God willing, it'll go for many, many more years. One of the, one of the concepts is that there's not such a clear, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's a little bit hard to model the kind of career that, that you have, that, that I have. And that I think a lot of people have and want to have of kind of developing their skill sets and helping people where they are. Is there certain advice or I guess you could say like Kizuk or, or um, strengthening that you have to give yourself as you kind of walk along a very unclear career world that's not, you know, that like nine to five and then you retire, which I don't think exists pretty much anymore? Um, I thought about that a lot and I get a lot of calls from rabbis I actually just got one yesterday from a rabbi who was a rabbi in the Hamptons who had similar questions. Um, what I found is there's three areas of uh, Jewish professional life. You've got to be good in one of these three. 
hopefully all three, if not two of them. And if you're going to be good at one of them, you better be really, really good at it. And that is number one, administration. There's some people in the Jewish world who are just very good administrators, putting things together, working programs, kind of the CEO type. The other is a fundraiser, uh, just very good at raising funds. Uh, and the third one is uh, education. I'm not a great administrator. I'm an okay fundraiser. I'm not great, which is something I wish I was better at. And I'm still striving uh, to become better at. And the third is education, which, you know, thank God I'm, uh, I've managed to build up a uh, you know, good repertoire, which I'm very grateful for, um, which I'm good at. So really you're focusing on those three. And ideally I tell people become good at all three, or at least be a good delegator. But fundraising is the most important. <laughs> I'm like, if you want to stay in this long term, and I wish I would have started fundraising earlier. Um, I got lazy at certain points because, you know, um, when I started with my birthright, my salary was taken care of and I got involved with education, which was great and was very, very successful and blew up, you know, in a good way. Um, however, the fundraising is, you know, uh, he or she who fundraises gets to make the decisions. So if there's any area I would say in terms of loving what you do and all the rest of the stuff, which is obvious, fundraising is really, you've got to put on your hit list of things you've got to, uh, you've got to be good at for sure. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. So a couple of questions here. We live in a, almost like a, a storybook world where you're reading the headlines and it's as exciting as a fiction book until you realize that sort of everyone's life is on the line. Um, what is like, what, what's going on? There's this, you know, Messiah and Israel, and I don't know if Donald Trump plays into that or not, but like, what are you telling people and what should people be thinking about as they sort of live through this epic of history and this concept that perhaps the history will not go on forever? I'm so pleased you asked me that, Jacob, because that happens to be the topic of my third book, uh, quite interestingly. Um, the, 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 um, Donald Trump has nothing to do with this book. This is not a sensationalized book. The first two books were light and easy reading and full of jokes, which I think were very funny. This one is definitely a more serious book. And uh, we're not looking per se at, well, we're actually looking at some current events, um, not any specific political leaders per se. We're looking at movements in the book, but it's a very much a traditional book, looking at Jewish sources to see what they say about the end of days. There's a lot written in the Christian world. Uh, you know, there's a whole rapture uh, field, which I became, you know, very well learned in. Um, and there's the Muslim idea, which we're seeing the coming of the Mahdi, and the Christians obviously have the second coming. And I want to say to the Jews, because I found that most Jewish people I spoke to, specifically the religious ones, have absolutely no idea, right? Well, the idea of the Mashiach, what it's all about, why, when, where, and there's so much written on it. Most people think it's just like a, you know, a fringe topic or something only the Lubavitch Hasidim are, uh, are interested in, and that's just not true. There's a lot written on it, Torah commentaries, all of scriptures is, uh, you know, focused on this. Um, so I really wanted to make an easy guide, if you will, for the end of days. Um, talks about Mashiach, qualifications, how do we know he is the Mashiach, um, parts of his personality, what his mission is. And then once you're in that realm, you can't help but fall into the realm of Israel because that's where all the attention is going to focus. Um, and there's no doubt a big part of the book is actually, I don't use the word proof, um, but as verification, if you will, of what we're seeing today are signs uh, of the, um, what I believe the imminent arrival of the Mashiach and what that means. So actually, the end of days, I call it that because it's a catchphrase, but it's really it's the, 
it's the days to come. It's not the end of days. Actually, it's a good thing. Um, and we're not going to end anything per se, except wars and struggle. The Maimonides, the Rambam. The only real difference between Olam Hazed, this world, and the world to come, uh, the, uh, the days to come, is that there'll be no more war, no strife, uh, based upon the prophet Isaiah and others, and things are going to be great. So when we look out the world and everything's very gloomy and challenging and difficult, um, there's good news and good things are coming. For example, if I just pick one example, uh, one thing we see that's very big in Israel is agriculture. And we look back 100 years ago, and Israel was not agriculturally, uh, you know, viable, exciting, things happening. You know, if you look at uh, the writings of people who visited uh, the land of Israel 100 years ago, like Mark Twain, for example, who I quote in the book, Israel was a dust bowl. And now we've seen this incredible, you know, rejuvenation of, of the agricultural world. And that happens to be spoken about a lot among the prophets in detail. They even like talk about the actual type of trees they're going to grow and where they're going to grow. Uh, and that's actually seen as a portent, as a sign that Mashiach, the Messiah is going to come, uh, laying the land, literally in this case, ready for the ultimate uh, revival of the Jewish people in Israel and the coming of the Messiah. So it, it's not negative, it's positive stuff. And we're seeing many such signs. Some of the signs aren't great, but there happens to be, I'll give you an example of one of the positive signs we're seeing. So I bring down the words of the prophets and the commentaries and what's happening in the world today, specifically Israel and Jerusalem. Amazing. So two, two questions on that. First of all, why do you think that the mainstream Orthodox world is so removed from this topic? Why are Jews in general thinking that, you know, the, the, the good days in heaven, all that kind of stuff are not part of, you know, Jewish, that, that somehow Christians and Muslims both sort of modeled everything from us, but just kind of made that part up and they happen to be very similar. That's good. Jacob, you, you hit a golden nugget over there. And I thought and spoke to a lot of people about this. Um, I'm not sure is the short answer. One reason is that there seems to be, I think there's a fear to discuss these things. Uh, I mean, there shouldn't be. Maimonides, the Rambam lists 30 principles of Jewish faith. And these 30 principles are considered by the Jews worldwide to be like, if you believe these, you're in. If you don't believe any of these, you're out. And they include such, you know, uh, nuggets of, uh, of Jewish philosophy that, um, you know, the prophet of, of Moses is, the most important prophecy, you have to believe the words of the prophets, the Torah is true, reward and punishment for our deeds, like all the classics, one would have thought. And you get to number 12, and it's you have to believe the coming of the Messiah, it's number 13, resurrection of the dead. So it's definitely part of mainstream Jewish thought. It's not some weird, mystical, fringe theory which we've grabbed upon. However, it's not mentioned in the five books of Moses. Uh, it's hinted at, and it's referenced at, and the Talmud picks apart many of the verses to say, it's talking about Mashiach, and it's talking about Jacob's talks to his sons about Mashiach and the eventual uh, redemption of the Jewish people. The rest of Scripture is full of it. So that may be one reason that it's not explicit. And why it's not explicit, I mentioned in the book, as to why it was left explicitly. The short answer is the Torah, the Bible, the five books of Moses, talk specifically about this world, right? What our job is. That's why the word Hayom is mentioned, uh, uh, you know, in a very big way. The other religions, however, are based upon this to the eschatology, which is a fancy word of saying it of days, is based upon that. All Christianity is based upon the Jewish idea of the Messiah, thinking they found the Messiah, which they haven't, as you read the books, very close. Although I don't discuss any other religion's view of the Messiah, if you just read uh, the scriptures, you see that we're still waiting for the first coming, let alone a second one. So if you look through and actually read it, it comes very, very clear and apparent that the Torah is obsessed with today, which is why the word Hayom today appears again and again and again. 
other religions, they're solely based upon this uh, eschatological reality, which we just aren't really interested. We're interested about today. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe it was actually a reaction to that, since the other religions are all about the end of days and the Messiah's second coming, you know, and according to Islam, pushing in order to bring uh, the Mahdi and doing certain things, which I speak about in the book, um, giving lives up, which we Jews are against, uh, as a way to bring the Messiah uh, early, as it were. So um, maybe it was a reaction to that. I heard from a, a great teacher of mine, he said, this topic is one of the topics, it's gonna sound a bit weird, but put in the freezer, right? It wasn't disposed of, heaven forbid, because it's a principle of our thought and you have to believe in it. But it was put in the freezer, it was put on hold. Maybe after the Holocaust, people were dealing with other things, um, just trying to recapture the Jewish world, recapture Torah learning, you know, try to build up you know, the Jewish masses after the, after the Holocaust. It could be. But again, look at any Jewish writer, and they're writing extensively. The Barbanel, the Rambam, right? He talks about it extensively. The laws, actually the laws of Mashiach, if you will, are found in the writings of the Rambam in the laws of kings, because that's really what Mashiach is. It's gonna be a king. Uh, so they all write about it. Yet when I hear rabbis talking, they like give a talk on the, the laws of kosher and they'll be like, and you know, maybe we see the Mashiach come at the end. It was like a, an addendum. Oh, by the way, it's like, well, that's just not enough. Why I wanted to. So there was this lack and I wanted to fill the void. Um, so the book was written for, I guess, a more Jewishly educated audience. But then again, I think anyone can enjoy it and we'll get a, hopefully a lot out of it. Are you seeing that there's a lot of anxiety in the, uh, the world today? And did you try to calm that anxiety? Do you, would you advocate if you're a student or a Jewish person comes to you and says, you know, I'm just so stressed out about what's going on in the world today in North Korea and all this kind of stuff. Do, do you take the lessons of your book and the concepts from our rabbis and say, well, you know, we really don't have to stress out about it so much. Or do you think that that's sort of a inappropriate use of theology in politics? Um, oh, me, I'm all about stoking anxiety. Any <laughs> chance I get to just like freak people out and to have people run through the streets screaming in panic. Uh, that's what I'm, no. Um, I, I do try to, I don't use the word console, I'm there to educate, but I wanna show the people that all the bad things that are happening that we're seeing, uh, I hope I prove in the book, are uh, predicted to some degree. Um, not to every degree, like some people out there try to find every nuance that's happening in politics relates to this verse and Isaiah. I, I think that's, that's a little bit overplayed, overdone. You know, there's people who find, you know, the codes and stuff. There's none of that uh, in the book at all. It's, it's pretty much a, 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 a rational book in that sense, looking through Jewish sources as opposed to, you know, fringe elements. Uh, having said that, we're seeing a lot of turmoil. Uh, we're seeing a lot of threats. People are freaking out. I mean, I saw what happened in Hawaii, you know, one little signal went out that's, you know, bomb could be coming and the whole city freaked out, which I, you know, I don't blame them for. Um, I'd pretty much be the same, although that's pretty much, a, I wouldn't say a daily occurrence, but a regular occurrence in Israel. They're just used to it, you know. Um, so a part of the book is looking at things we're seeing in terms of anti-Semitism, uh, in terms of, yeah, definitely hatred of the Jewish people, seeing a rise in the Muslim world and putting that into context. I'm putting it into context and saying that this has been spoken about, it's happening for a reason, and the rise uh, of the Muslim world is part of that. The growth in atheism we're seeing is 
actually spoken about directly by the prophet Daniel and the Ramam addresses it and says, we're going to see this large movement of atheism sweep across the world. There'll be small pockets uh, that will hold on to a true belief in God, even among the Jewish people. Um, specifically, we're going to see pockets of different groups. They're going to fan out towards the end of days. And it's going to be hard to know who's got the truth. And the Ramam talks about that. Um, but this is nothing so new. Uh, the Jews in Yemen, a uh, number of hundreds of years ago, about a thousand years ago, had their own troubles when it came to a lot of persecution and challenges. And they wrote to the Ramam Maimonides. Um, and he became, to this day, he still is, I don't say the guru, but the chief rabbi of the Yemenite Jews. So Yemenite Jews, like, they extol the Ramams. Oh, Ramam HaKadosh, the Holy Rambam. And the reason is because he wrote a lot of letters to them, uh, which you can see in Hebrew and English. And I quoted a lot of that in the book, calming them down and um, describing what's happening to them as being a prelude uh, towards the end of days, um, including the atheism thing. Um, and the reaction to Islam that they were dealing with in their days and false messiahs. Um, so it's nothing new per se. I'm not creating anything new. I'm just gathering information that existed before and like crunching it together. Uh, if people read the book and become consoled uh, that things aren't getting worse, they are actually getting better. We're climbing a mountain, Jacob, climbing a mountain and it's difficult and it's challenging, uh, but there is a top to the mountain, there is a peak, and we're getting there. I think we're closer than most people realize to that, um, but uh, things are getting better. And we as Jewish people, although we've been through more than any other nation in the world, been through more pogroms, Holocaust, exiles, and uh, crusades, um, we always are optimistic, and that's just because like, we're crazy, right? Like, hey, let's just be happy. The answer is because we're getting to a place where things are going to get better. And that's really the main lesson of the Torah and our prophets, that things are bad now, but they will be better. And we're getting to and going to a, a, a better place. How would you respond to the skeptic that says either one of two things? First of all, that this promotes, you know, I guess you could say the same kind of fear, fear mongering, if you could, that, that Christians and Muslims deploy on their you know, on their audiences. And the second question would be this idea, and you alluded to it, that we can essentially find, you know, examples of everything and there's all these different kinds of people, you know, how do you address that concern that, no, this is actually really happening as opposed to we're just trying to kind of, you know, paint the target after we've shot the arrow? Uh, it's a fair question. I'll start with the one word you use, which is skeptical. Um, skeptical is good. Okay, we as Jews, I speak about in my first book, uh, which is, uh, you know, do you got questions? Skepticism is good and it's a healthy thing. Cynicism is not good. So cynicism is basically just poo-pooing and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm checking out. Skepticism, I don't know. I'm going to look into, I'm going to check it out. Um, so reading my book or any book or hearing any idea, any Torah class being skeptical is a good and I believe healthy thing. I think uh, that's unfortunately been lost from a lot of the world, definitely the Christian world, and even elements within the Jewish world. They've lost that. They, they're, they're fearful of people asking questions and being skeptical. Um, so in terms of my book, I would say like anything else, you know, buy it, read it, and be skeptical, you know, and make your own conclusions. Um, everything is sourced. You can see everything, read everything. And if you can put it together, uh, and if it makes sense, and you're able to, you know, 
enjoy and get something out of it, then fantastic. Do you have to agree with everything I write? I don't think there's much in life you have to buy in some things, but not everything you have to buy in 100% in order to enjoy it, in order to get something out of it, you know? Most books I read, I get, you know, 80, 90%. That's pretty good. That's a good day's work if I can get something out of it. So if the concern is being skeptical of what I'm writing about or what anyone's writing about, fantastic. Be skeptical, it's healthy, and it should be a catalyst for more questions and more learning which is why it's a very, unlike the first two books, is a lot more heavily sourced. I give people the opportunity, you're interested, to go into the Torah sources to see what I've written and make their own conclusions. So I like skepticism. Agreed. Two, two final questions. Question number one is, what inspires you in terms of your own reading and your own learning, or if there's a particular mentor or rabbi that you follow that kind of keeps you fired up? Um, Thank you for that question. What inspires me? Um, tennis, play a lot of that, that inspires me. Um, I don't want to give too much of a cliche answer, but I'll give you, um, I'll give you the honest answer. It's funny, I was actually in, um, speaking in New, uh, in, uh, in, in New Jersey last night, and uh, it was a smallish group. There were like maybe 30 people, 20, 30 people. Um, and we had interesting people in the crowd. I had a doctor, obviously, a Jewish group, and, uh, and lawyers and finance people. And there was a guy that I said, so what do you do? Because, you know, I get to know people a little bit when I speak. I don't just uh, present and check in, check out. And he says, I'm a puppeteer. Oh, wow, I think I haven't met a Jewish puppeteer before. We got into conversation. And it's going to sound very strange. I was actually inspired by what he told me. You know, he uses it as a teaching methodology and, and related to people. So it just, that just sprung to my head because what inspires me are people who are inspired. And it doesn't really matter what you do, to be honest with you. I find people who are, you would call probably like boring jobs, who are very inspired, and people who have like amazing, you know, careers and lives and talents who are uninspired and uninspiring. Um, funny, when I went to work for my, uh, this past uh, job I had, um, someone said to me, you know, so, you know, what inspires you? And I said, the people around me who weren't there, if they're inspired, I'm inspired. I don't really care what they do, where they're from, you know, if they're inspired people, it's contagious. So I tell people, whatever you do, be inspired about it. You know, if you're a doctor, lawyer, garbage collector, Indian chief, I don't really care. Be inspired about it. And that's contagious. So that's something which I try to, to, uh, to live by. And if I find a book inspiring, I read it. If I don't, I put it down. And if I see something online, which I find inspiring, I try to share it with other people and I try to build them inspiration. So my social media, which I'm quite invested in, um, I try to always feed with, uh, with inspirational messages and thoughts and ideas and videos and be inspired about it. So no matter what I teach, I'm hoping, uh, from the laws of Shabbat, which I teach a course in, which people say, wait, ain't so, you know, inspiring, you know, learning how to, you know, details of Shabbat, what you can, cannot touch. But I find it interesting. I'm inspired. And some students say to me, out of all the other classes I give, they enjoy that the most uh, because... I don't know, it's, it's, uh, I'm inspired by it. So inspiration is contagious. And if you're inspired by it, others will be. And if you're not, they won't. And so to, to clarify what you're saying is that it's the, the real inspiration has to spring from the internal, that you have to generate your own inspiration and then feed off of, of other people, as opposed to I'm hanging out with person X and that's going to somehow like rub off. I mean, I have to be generating it from the inside or saying that's what you try to do. To be. And once you're not inspired anymore, in your career, for example, you've got to make a change. Yeah. I meet so many people who are just on this cycle of just like, I'm doing it because I'm doing it. And we've all been there. I mean, I've been there too. And they're just doing it because they're doing it. 
And then you've got to make some change with internally or, or socially or something's got to change. I'm not saying that your career should be exciting all the time. It's, not, it's okay to coast. You know, I have many people I deal with who are coasting through their careers because they're focusing on their dating and relationships and that's okay. Right? You don't have to walk into work every day like, woohoo, you know, unless you're, you know, you know, dealing in meth, you're not going to be completely like freaking out every single day, whatever you're dealing with, Jacob. But there should be a certain amount of like, I'm generally speaking, I'm inspired by this. I may have a week off, two weeks off, a month where I'm, you know, working through something, but there should be a general um, inspiration that keeps us going. And that comes from people, not the job. People have to be inspired. What they do is really secondary, if not tertiary, to be honest. Fantastic. And final question from your 30,000 foot view and having spent, you know, two plus decades, two plus decades in Jewish education and outreach in the Jewish world and have talked and traveled and done all these things. What do you feel like is the biggest challenge that's facing the Jewish people right now? And how do you go about your area of trying to address that? I'll answer that with an unusual uh, short anecdote. I got a call, this is unusual for me, I know people in the Jewish get this, from a, a Hasidic rabbi in Borough Park, uh, you know, Brooklyn, New York, uh, a couple of, two weeks ago. And he said, with a very thick, heavy Yiddish accent, which I only caught every second word, <laughs> come speak to my people, come speak to my, uh, my community. I said, you know, I don't really speak to Hasidim, I deal, you know, with young professionals. You know, I teach college, but I'm not really, no, you come, you come, you come, you bring, you give them care of, you come, you, you inspire, inspire. I said, you know, I, I, I'm not sure he goes, come. So I, I said, fine, you know, I said to my wife, she's like, just go, you know, and just see what's going on. There were 300 people there. 300 turned up, and I'm not known in the Hasidic world, you know what I'm saying? And I spoke for an hour and a half, um, and I realized talking to them afterwards and, you know, dealing with them, that they're like everyone else, you know? They're regular people, <laughs> and we see them as, you know, Hasidim and, you know, it's difficult to relate to, the whole garb and stuff, but like everyone else. And we're all dealing with the same thing, you know? All Jews and really all people, you know? Trying to, to, to get through life, being inspired, hopefully connecting to God, which is what we, you know, rabbis and everyone should be trying to, you know, instill in people, including ourselves, it's a constant struggle. <sighs> Everyone's dealing with it lack of inspiration, uh, lack of knowledge. I mean, they have, that particular community has their own challenges, which I try to uh, get into. It happens to be dating, relationships, and marriage is not one of the problems. A divorce actually is, but getting married is not. And secular world is other things. Lack of awareness. People are just not aware of their great potential. That's really, when you, if you got to boil it down after everything is said and done, people just are not living fulfilling lives knowing their true potential. I guess it sounds cliched, but if I could crunch everything I said down to one point, if we understood who we were and our personal mission in this world, uh, our community potential, the Jewish peoples and eventually the world's potential and how God wants us to exceed, succeed and exceed in what we're doing, I think a lot of things would, uh, would change. So self-awareness, I would say is, is probably a big, big, I mean, that, I mean, a lot comes out from that. Marriage, relationships, a career. I mean, it all stems from that. But unless you really work on yourself and understand what you, how amazing you, know, you are, which we all struggle with today, especially in the world we're living in with social media, where it's all about the other, not about ourselves. I would say uh, that's it. And a lack of good restaurants. <laughs>
something else. Which... It's funny you said that in uh, in New York because I didn't say to you there's not really any restaurants, but uh, okay. Any restaurants? I said good restaurants. There's, I hear, I hear, I hear you. So, so you would say that the uh, that the biggest challenge is to is to really embrace you know that that sense of of, of our potential who we are, which again is probably one of the things that would happen in the Messianic era as well. Um, so to tie it all back very nicely, please tell our viewers and everyone that's watching how we can find out more about you and your upcoming projects and everything that's Rabbi had you off. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. A shameless plug mm. about to begin. Uh, check out my website, rabbilawrence.com. Uh, has a number of my classes and um, you can purchase my books on Amazon as well. Type in Hadjioff. I'm the only Hadjioff uh, online that's actually, you know, selling books. So you should be okay with that. Um, in addition, the new book will be out soon. So please look out for that. They'll be out in, in a few weeks, God willing. It's actually being printed right now in Israel. Uh, it's cheaper to print out there. That's pretty why. Being uh, uh, imported. I have a YouTube channel, also Lawrence Hadjoff. I have maybe nearly a thousand different classes on all areas of, of Jewish life, from Jewish holidays to, you know, laws of kosher, everything to do with Shabbat, mysticism, you name it. It's all there. So you could go check that out. And um, I'm also on Facebook. I have a Rabbi Lawrence Hadjoff page on Facebook. You can definitely follow me there. I have nearly three and a half thousand followers, so that's wonderful. And I, uh, I Facebook Live a lot of my classes and programs as well. So please, uh, you know, search me. I'm probably the most contactable rabbi in the entire world. There's no excuse not to be involved uh, somehow with, uh, with me, my books, writings, or whatever. And Amazing. Just, uh, rabbi, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Jacob. Good luck. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.